welcome to Conversations with Matt DeLockery. In this episode, we're going to begin to look at verses 11 to 15 and see what Paul has to say about the relationship between Christ and those who follow him. There's a lot here, so it's going to take two episodes to cover these five verses, but so you know, they all belong together. We'll pull everything together at the end of the next episode to show you how everything we talk about fits together, but we have a lot to talk about before we get there. So, in verses 11 to 15, the relationship that believers have with Christ is explained in more detail through a series of five metaphors. These are, one, circumcision, two, baptism, three, death and resurrection, four, cancellation of the record of debt, and five, disarming and triumph. Now, when I call these metaphors, I don't mean that they're not true. Often, people today will call something in the Bible a metaphor as a roundabout way of saying that it isn't true. That's not what I'm doing, and more importantly, that's not the purpose of a metaphor. The purpose of a metaphor is to explain something that is abstract using something else that we're more familiar with. Metaphors, therefore, are meant to make something more clear. And basically, what's happening here is that Paul is piling up five different metaphors to try to explain what has happened as a result of a person following Christ, how things are now different for the believer. And basically, what's happening here is that Paul is piling up five different metaphors to try to explain what has happened as a result of a person following Christ, how things are now different for the believer. That's a really hard thing to explain, and that's why Paul uses five metaphors instead of one. He's trying to come at this from different angles and to take a look at this from all different sides because this whole relationship with Christ thing is a little abstract. So let's see if the metaphors that Paul gives us can help make things a little more clear. All right, first up is circumcision. Verse 11 says, In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And what you're probably thinking right now, besides, I don't want to talk about circumcision, is, oh great, I don't even understand what that's all about in the first place. How is it going to help me understand something else? Don't worry, I totally get it, both parts. And while this one would have been much more familiar to the ancient audience than it is to the average modern audience, I don't think understanding it will actually be as hard as it might look at first glance. Let's take a look at it. First and foremost, circumcision was a practice that became so identified with the Jews that it became one of their identity markers. In other words, in Paul's day, as well as a lot of other times, you could tell who was a Jew by whether or not he was circumcised. If he was, he was a Jew. If he wasn't, then he was not a Jew. So the practice of circumcision speaks very strongly to a person's identity. Second, what we should notice here is that the circumcision is made without hands. In other words, This is a spiritual circumcision. Now, the original physical version of circumcision was the practice of literally cutting off excess flesh. However, even in the Old Testament, we find a metaphorical meaning for circumcision, the circumcision of the heart. The idea behind that was that whatever was not dedicated to God or fit for a service would be cut off or removed. And this is what the phrase, putting off the body of flesh, refers to. Any part of the believer's life that is not fit for service to God is to be cut off. Whatever is unholy or outside of God's will is to be removed. In chapter 3, Paul will discuss what parts of the believer's lives are to be removed. Cool. 
But what does Paul mean here? What Paul is saying is that with the circumcision made without hands, believers become identified as part of the new people of God and leave the things of this world behind to focus on the things of God. Circumcision is about becoming part of the people of God. Now, the way this happens is through the circumcision of Christ. Verse 12 says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. So, since we're talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the circumcision of Christ does not refer to his literal circumcision, but to his death. Remember, we're talking about spiritual circumcision and not physical circumcision. Physical circumcision, in the Old Testament, meant that a child had become part of the nation of Israel and the people of God. Spiritual circumcision means that the believer has become a part of the church and the new people of God. The circumcision of Christ himself is the beginning of this new people of God, and when believers are spiritually circumcised themselves, they become a part of this new people of God. And since spiritual circumcision is being connected with baptism, that means that with baptism, believers become part of the new people of God, the church. So, baptism. Now, as soon as we start talking about baptism, the thing that everyone starts focusing on is what kind of baptism is it? Is it immersion? Is it sprinkling? Do we baptize children? Do we baptize just adult believers? And so on and so forth. These are all good questions, but we're not going to be able to answer them with this passage. Very probably, baptism by immersion is the idea that is behind this verse because it makes better sense considering that one is buried in baptism, symbolized by being immersed under the water. However, the method of baptism, or whether we baptize children or not, is not, I repeat, is not the focus of this passage. Baptism is being described as the place, if you will, where the spiritual circumcision is taking place. Again, though, it is not the baptism that is in focus. It is a burial and resurrection with Christ that is the focus. I'm going to say this again so that you don't miss it. Baptism is not the focus. Burial and resurrection with Christ is the focus. Here's why I think that. 1. The burial points towards the fact that the old life is a thing of the past. Paul is telling the believers that now you've been buried with Christ, everything you have done, and everything that you were is behind you. Burial points towards believers leaving their old lives behind them. 2. The fact that believers are already raised is what will allow them to live the new life. Being buried with Christ points towards your old life being behind you. But being raised with Christ points towards a new life being in front of you. It is not just about everything past being over and done with. In that case, you would have nowhere to go, no way to move forward. Being raised with Christ is about that way forward. There is hope. You do have a future. 3. The with him phrases emphasize that this leaving the old life behind and beginning a new life can only occur in Christ. Think back to the hymn and remember that Christ is the firstborn from the dead. He is the one who went through death and came out the other side. And what we also saw is that Christ is the founder of a new group, a new people, the church. Those who follow Christ and are a part of the church are the ones who are buried with him and the ones he raised to new life. 
This can only happen in Christ because Christ is the firstborn from the dead. Just as he was the firstborn of all creation and made all things in existence, he is the firstborn from the dead and will remake everyone who follows him. So, burial and resurrection with Christ are what is important. Baptism is the place in which that happens. Again, baptism is an important thing, but is not discussed in any detail here. It is only used to point toward the burial and resurrection that happens with Christ. Now, as we are looking at this, let's take a minute to remember what is going on here. Paul is comparing Christianity to the alternative philosophy that is at Colossae. And here's why what he just said about being raised with Christ matters in that comparison. The fact that a Christian has new life in Christ counteracts the alternate philosophies teaching that the Christian needs to add something, right? If you've already been raised to new life in Christ, what could you possibly need to add to that? I know I've been making this point a lot, that Christ has accomplished everything that the believer needs and that there is no reason to look anywhere else. And all of this is possible because of who Christ is. I know this is getting repetitive. But while I think it is worth repeating, please understand that it is not me who is doing the repeating. Paul's doing that. When you dig into what the letter is saying and look at why Paul is saying what he is saying and how everything works in the flow of argument, you will see that Paul is repeatedly emphasizing these points. The reason for that is because there is only one way. Paul is not a pluralist. There are not many paths to God. Man has tried and will continue to try to work his way up to God. But Paul's point is that the only way that you can get to a God who is up there is by him reaching down, which he did. And Paul's point has two parts. One, if God has reached down to us, why would you look for another way to God? Wouldn't God know the best way to make that happen? And two, why would you think another way would even work? Do you really think that man can reach up to God? Really? That is why there is so much emphasis on Christ. Christ is a way that God has reached down to man. Now before we move on, I want to cover one more thing. I said that those who follow Christ are considered to have already died and been raised with him. Obviously, though, those of us who follow Christ have not actually died and been raised. So what's up? Why would Paul say this? What he's doing is describing the future as if it has already happened, because that future is certain. This is a common thing to do in the Bible when an author is talking about something God will do. Because God is going to do it, you know that it's going to happen. So, since you know that it will happen with absolute certainty, biblical authors, like Paul, will describe it as having already occurred. And, in addition to that, they'll expect believers to live as if that future is certain, which it is. Again, we'll see this in chapter 3. Paul will expect believers to live for the world above because that's where they're headed. So, let's continue on to verse 13. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. The third metaphor builds off the previous two and prepares us for the following one. This is death and resurrection. Remember, these metaphors are not entirely distinct ideas. We have our thing that we're looking at, our relationship with Christ and what he has done for us. And Paul is walking us around that and showing us what it looks like from all sides. In this verse, we're looking at death and resurrection, 
but this time we're focusing in on how this is connected with our trespasses. There are two categories here that we need to look at, circumcision and trespasses. Now, we talked about circumcision back in verse 11, but it comes back up here. However, because of the pronouns in this verse, things can be a little tricky. Paul said that you, referring to Gentiles, were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. But he said that God has forgiven us, referring to both Jews and Gentiles, all our trespasses. The reason that the Jews and Gentiles are referred to differently here is because the Jews were already circumcised. Remember, that was a Jewish practice. So only the Gentiles needed to have the circumcision issue addressed. Of course, as we know from Paul's writings elsewhere, he did not want the Gentiles to become circumcised. But if you remember from verse 11, he said the Gentiles were spiritually circumcised. So here's what all the circumcision stuff means. Circumcision is a category of relationship. It identifies a person as belonging to the people of God. The Jews already had this. They already belonged to the people of God. The Gentiles needed to belong to the people of God, but following the Old Testament law was not part of the deal. Paul's letter to the Galatians gets into that. He doesn't do it here, so neither will we. So the Jews already belonged to the people of God, and their physical circumcision made that clear. The Gentiles did not belong to the people of God, at least before Christ. As a result, those Gentiles who have followed Christ have been spiritually circumcised and now do belong to the people of God. Again, the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles is a huge issue, but we're not getting into that here. All I'm doing is explaining why Paul is using different pronouns for Jews and Gentiles. Very simply, the Jews didn't need circumcision, but the Gentiles did. And for the Gentiles, that has been accomplished through the circumcision of Christ by dying and being raised with him. However, what both groups did need was forgiveness for their trespasses. Both were dead in their trespasses, and God has made them alive in Christ. Belonging to the people of God was a category of relationship. Forgiveness for trespasses was a moral category. There is something broken in man, and it needs to be fixed. We were dead in our trespasses, and we needed to be made alive. This is something that all humans need, whether Jew or Gentile. This was accomplished by rising from the dead with Christ. However, God did not just wave his hand and make all the problems go away. He did not and does not just ignore our sin. He actually deals with it. But how he does that is something that we will get into next time. Before we finish, though, I want to make one point. We've been talking about two different categories. The category of relationship, you know, a person being part of the people of God or not and the category of morality, whether a person has been forgiven for his trespasses or not. In Christ, these two categories have been merged. Prior to Christ, it was possible to be circumcised and still be guilty of trespasses. Now that spiritual circumcision is what identifies the people of God, that is no longer possible. All who are in Christ are spiritually circumcised. All who are in Christ are forgiven their trespasses. To be in Christ is to be both spiritually circumcised and be forgiven for your trespasses. However, the converse is also true. Since forgiveness is only in Christ, then those who are outside Christ have not been forgiven for their trespasses. In Christ, one is a part of the people of God and is forgiven. Outside of Christ, one is not part of the people of God and is not forgiven. 
Hopefully all of this has made some sense. Stay tuned for the next episode as we finish up looking at the last two of these metaphors, and then we're going to pull everything together into one big picture. Thank you.